Let me pray, and then we're going to jump into to Revelation. Um, Father, thank you so much for, thanks for this book. Um, thanks for how challenging it is. Um, Lord, thanks for how insightful it is. And we thank you that it really is a hope-filled book. Um, we pray that you'd fill us with hope as we study it over these next two months. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, there's a biblical word that has made its way into almost every single Western language uh, and culture. A particular word from the Bible that's used uh, in almost every language to express this similar idea of joy or happiness or relief or gratitude or even just sheer delight. Do you know the word? Hallelujah. You'll find that word in almost every Western language. And I'm sure Handel's Messiah had a lot to do with it uh, and the famous Hallelujah Chorus. Uh, you know, it shows up in almost every film you watch, TV show, where something amazing happens, and then that chorus plays, and everyone gets all excited. Uh, and it's there to show, to reveal a moment of joy or wonder or relief, or, you know, Leonard Cohen made a lot of money off that word. And you and I, we use it all the time, right? Your car breaks down, the tow truck finally shows up, what do you say? Hallelujah, right? Your, fa- your food finally comes at the restaurant they've been taking forever. And what do you say? Oh, hallelujah. It's finally here. Uh, the paycheck comes through. Hallelujah. I can pay my bills this month. And so that word is used all over the world to express the same thought or emotion. Uh, and if you wanted, by the way, to swear in another language, like in German or French or Czech or Spanish or Russian, you'd have to actually learn a new vocabulary to be able to do that because those words don't transfer over. But if you want to express praise or joy or happiness or gratitude, it doesn't matter what culture and you can use that same word and everybody knows exactly what you mean. Um, and that's a word from the Bible. But do you know how many times it shows up in the Bible? Any idea? Four. Four. Uh, and it's four times in the same chapter. Every use of hallelujah in the Bible is found um, in just the first six verses of Revelation chapter 19. Uh, which I'll read some of it to you at the end. But right at the end of your Bible, right as Jesus is securing victory over all that is evil in the world, uh, right as he's putting everything wrong, right, or introduced to this word that simply means praise God. Hallelujah, praise God. And the book of Revelation at its core, it is this hopeful book. And it's actually a book about being able to say that word. But as you'll see as we walk through this book, the word... That word was injected into the vocabulary, not of a group of people who are having a great time. It was actually injected into the vocabulary of a group of people who were suffering, who were threatened daily with torture and death. And so it wasn't injected into the lives of happy people who had everything they wanted out of life. It was actually injected into the lives of just the very opposite. And so the churches that sang and said hallelujah they were, by the way, they're all almost exclusively made up of the poor, the exploited, the imprisoned, the martyred. And yet they could say that word. And that means it's a word that's meant not just for the best of circumstances, but it's meant for all circumstances. And so saying hallelujah then means it doesn't depend on a full bank account. It doesn't depend on success at work or a thriving romantic relationship and good health. It doesn't depend on those things. In other words, you don't have to wait until you feel good to say it or to sing it. Because that word, hallelujah, praise God, is about, it's about a reality that supersedes our own reality. 
when you say it or sing it, you're actually joining in with a chorus that is eternally emulating from God's very presence. And to say hallelujah means you are orienting your own personal and temporal reality around God's transcendent eternal reality. So you're actually reorienting your whole perspective on your whole worldview from your temporary, physical, visible reality into God's eternal transcendent reality. And so to say hallelujah means Whatever changing or tumultuous circumstances you're facing, they can actually be met by God's unchanging, peaceful, ordinary circumstances in heaven. In other words, to say hallelujah is actually to overcome your circumstances. And that's what Revelation really is meant to do for us. You know, on the one hand, it's a book about the future. It is that. But on the other hand, and in a much more specific way, and much more of the book is about now. It's a book about how the unseen spiritual reality of heaven impacts the visible physical reality of our own world here on earth. And my hope is that at the end of looking at this for eight weeks, you'll be able to do two things. One, you can say and sing hallelujah no matter what circumstances you're facing, good or bad. And number two, you'll be able to somewhat describe the main themes of this book to someone else so they can sing or say hallelujah in their circumstances. And like I said, we're going to move fast. Most weeks we're going to cover two or three or four chapters all at once. We'll kind of slow down as we get to the end. Uh, And the reason is so that we can grasp the the message of the book and all its clarity rather than get bogged down in like the little details of what does this word refer to in, in the news today, which is what a lot of people try and do with the book of Revelation. And so we're going to start where the writer, John, starts with meeting Jesus Christ. That's where it starts. Now, I guess it's a sort of L.A. experience to run into celebrities around the city at a coffee shop, a restaurant, uh, even walking down the street. And one of my first experiences of this was actually before I moved to L.A. Uh, I was was here in town to visit some of you, uh, trying to, you know, get my head around what the city was like uh, just before the pandemic hit. And I was sitting in a coffee shop uh, over on York, in Highland Park and just enjoying my coffee, getting a little bit of work done. And Emily Blunt, Mary Poppins herself, walks in and orders an Earl Grey tea, uh, which happens to be my favorite tea, by the way. So we have that in common. Uh, And when she walked out, she looked over at me and she just, she gave me like a little smile. And I was like, oh my gosh, I think she likes me. And so I very quickly texted my wife, Emmy, and I said, hey, I don't want you to be worried, but I think Emily Blunt might be into me. Uh, Emmy's response was, um, well, great, I think her husband's pretty good looking too. So <laughs> honestly, she probably smiled because she knew that I knew who she was, right? That's probably why she smiled, but it's a, it's a it's a slightly surreal experience seeing a, a person in person who you've only ever seen on a large screen before. Although after a year and a half on Zoom, that is much more normal that you actually meet people through a screen. But before that, it was kind of surreal. But I have to confess, when I saw her, I wasn't awed. I didn't fall down on the ground. My heart wasn't racing. But when the Apostle John meets the risen Jesus Christ decades after he watched him ascend to heaven through the clouds, 
The experience is so intense, he immediately falls on the ground. And know this, it wasn't the first time he met Jesus. He traveled around with him. He lived with him for three years, saw him day by day by day. But there's something about this experience that is so utterly intense, he falls down on the ground. Look at chapter 1, verse 17. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And so for John, being in Jesus' presence, it's actually, it's unendurable. And you can begin to see why. Just look at the description of Jesus. Go back to verse 14. It says, the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when John sees him, he falls on his face. Now you and I read that and we think, well, actually, when I see something amazing, I, I, I lean into it. I can't stop looking at it. I, I have to say, look at it and say, wow, and I have to express something. So how is it that a view of the most beautiful being in all the universe would cause John to fall as though dead rather than stand and say, wow? Well, we see back in verse 16. It says his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Have you ever tried staring at the sun? You can do it. It's pretty sunny today. Give it a try. You can't. You can't do it. You can't stare at it. You can't endure it. It's so bright. It's so intense. You have to look away. Otherwise, you'll never see anything again. That's what Jesus' face is like. That's what his presence is like. And do you know what that's really getting at? Do you know what it's really saying? It's actually saying that Jesus Christ is God. In fact, every description of Jesus Christ in the entire book of Revelation, every single one of them has its roots in some description of God in the Old Testament. Every single one of them has its roots in the description of who God is and what he's like in the Old Testament. And so every time the book of Revelation describes Jesus, it is intentionally telling us that Jesus Christ is fully God. And if you read through the Old Testament and you pick out all the passages where a human being, by the way, is confronted with the presence of God and all his glory, the human being can't endure it. Do you remember this? Moses had to cover his face. And when, do you remember when God said, okay, I'll show you my glory? What did God have to do? He covered him. Do you remember Joshua falls flat on his face? Isaiah comes completely undone. He calls out for his own judgment. Elijah pulls a cloak over his face. Daniel, when he meets him, his face goes pale. He loses all strength in his arms and legs, and he collapses to the ground. Every single instance, when even these great holy men, these holy prophets of God, come into God's presence, they can't endure it. But there is one instance where a human being is able to withstand God's presence. Back in Genesis 2 at creation, the man, Adam, was able to be in God's presence and not be destroyed. He was able to endure God's presence. So what's different about Genesis 2 than every other passage in the Bible? Well, in Genesis 2, guess what? Man hasn't sinned yet. But once Adam sins, humankind can't endure God's presence. Adam and Eve, they can't endure it. They hear his presence coming in the garden and they go and hide. And God has to cover them. He makes clothing for them. 
And so that's why John isn't able to endure the presence of Jesus Christ in all his glory, because he's a sinful man just like you and me. That even John, the great apostle who followed Jesus as his closest and most beloved disciple, who spent the rest of his life traveling the world to tell people the gospel, who wrote five books of the New Testament, even he can't stand before him because he has sin in his life. And if John can't do that, then how could you and I ever stand before him? Well, not only does John encounter the glorified Jesus Christ in this way, but so do the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And this is where the book gets moving along. The book starts with Jesus' messages to these seven churches. Um, And I'm glad it starts here because what the rest of the book is, is this pulling back of the curtain to show us the spiritual realm, to show us what is happening in the spiritual world and how that impacts the world that we live in. And even though it does that with all these incredible images of beasts and blood and horses, it starts with something totally relatable. It starts with something that we can understand. Seven letters to seven churches. I know what a letter is. I know what a church is. I can, I can grasp that. But why seven letters to seven churches? Well, remember from that video, the number seven in this context, it means a complete set, a complete number. And so these letters are actually addressed and delivered to seven real churches. Here, here's a map. Uh, that's where those seven churches are. They're all in, in what is modern-day Turkey. And they're, uh, they're real letters to those real churches. But those seven churches, because remember that represents a complete set. They're the representative churches for all churches for all time in all parts of the world. So these seven letters are to seven churches. The, the churches, they're real ones in history but they're also us today. Here, by the way, it wasn't in the video, but here's how the the seven uh, letters to the seven churches, here's how they fit sort of along the timeline. Um, And uh, there they are, right across the top. And every letter follows the same basic format. Uh, Here it is. Uh, Number one, a description of Jesus. Number two, a praise for the church. Number three, a problem in the church. Number four, a challenge to the church. And number five, a promise to the church. Almost every single one of them follows that order. Uh, It might flip a couple of them every now and again, but it pretty much follows that order. So take that format, multiply it by seven, and that sums up all of Revelation chapters two and three. And when you read these letters, each church is confronted with Jesus Christ in his glory. Each church is given a description of Jesus, just like John saw. To one, it says he's the first and the last. To another, it says his tongue is like a double-edged sword. To another, his eyes are like blazing fire. Which means, like John, when they meet Jesus, they too should fall flat on their faces in fearful awe because they know their deeds, they know their brokenness. They won't be able to stand before him whose face shines like the brilliance of the sun, whose eyes are like fire and hair like snow. But in spite of that, as you read each letter... Jesus says to all of them, he wants them to overcome. He doesn't want to come and find them full of sin and afraid. He wants to come and find them pure and alive. And so he sends these letters to help them. And in each letter, he shows each church the main thing, the main sin that is in the way of them gaining Jesus' approval when he comes. The main thing that if they're engaged in it in any way, they won't be able to endure his presence. And so let's look at these because If you dig into each of these letters and you just analyze the problem in each church, you'll see that the churches fit into three basic categories. 
There are two categories that show us uh, the sin that's in the way and one category of churches that haven't actually given in yet, but they're really weak. Um, so here's the categories. This is sort of how it works. So uh, you can follow the first letter, second letter, third. You can see that. And they, they sort of fit along this chart. And as we look at these, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of these ancient churches for a minute. Because remember, the very same Jesus Christ who has the sharp, double-edged sword, he's addressed these letters to you and I and to our church. And he is coming. So it says at the end, behold, I'm coming soon. And we will stand before him, every single one of us. And if there is sin in our lives, what it says is we will not be able to endure his coming. So how, how do we? How do we get to the end where we see Jesus face to face and know that we've won his approval? How do we know we can stand? Well, to get that approval, each letter says that we have to overcome or to be victorious. To one, he says, to the one who is victorious, I will give access to the tree of life. To another, he says, to the one who is victorious, I will give a white stone with a new name written on it. To the one who is victorious, I will never blot out their name from the book of life. So how do we do that? How do we overcome? How are we victorious? Well, look first, uh, look at what keeps us from overcoming. And the first thing, you'll see a slightly different version of the chart. That idols let you down. Idols let you down. And that's what's happened in Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis. They've all given in to idolatry. But all of them have been let down by their idols. Now, an idol is anything or anyone that you love and obey with more intensity than God. In other words, an idol is anything or anyone you give central importance to in your life other than God himself. And look what happened in these three churches. In Pergamum and Thyatira, it says that they lost their moral centers. In both cities, they've been led to idol worship, and that has led them to sexual immorality. And in Sardis, idolatry has actually, it, it's killed them spiritually. Look at what Jesus' letter uh, to them says, chapter 3, verse 1. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. And these idols have done nothing but let them down. They've completely eroded their moral center and they've killed them spiritually. And why would they turn to idols? I mean, these are churches. Why would they turn to idols in the first place? Why would they turn away from Jesus to an idol? Well, it seems that it's because they wanted either just to survive in their culture or to, to try and gain significance or acceptance in their culture. So at a minimum, they're like, I just want to get by without somebody harming me for being a Christian. At a maximum, it's because they're saying, I, I want to thrive in this culture. And in order to do that, I've got to worship this particular idol. Um, if you've ever watched a Genji Cohen show, you kind of already know how this works. If you've ever watched a show Weeds or Orange is the New Black, the premise of both shows is pretty much the same thing. What Cohen does is she likes to take a particularly moral person, an upstanding housewife or overly hygienic, morally pure career woman, and then rip the rug out from under them and watch what happens. And in both these shows, that person, that character, if you were watching any other show, they would be the moral center of the show. They'd be the one that every moral decision is judged up against that particular character. 
But what happens in both these shows is the person who would normally be that all of a sudden becomes corrupted by their circumstances in order to survive. And that's often why people might give in morally. It's to survive or to be accepted by others. And that's what these three churches in Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis, that's what they're facing. And it seems that rather than overcoming by trusting in Christ, they turned to the idols of their cultures. And in doing that, they lost their moral center. But look what Jesus says to these churches who've turned to idols. Look at what he promises them. To Pergamum, he says this, chapter 2, verse 17. He says, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now, you might read that and think, a white stone? Well, what's the big deal? Like, some, somebody's got a bunch of them in their yard over here. I could just go get one. I don't. Or why not a gold stone? Or a platinum stone? Something with some value to it. Well, remember to each and every one of these seven churches, Jesus says, I know you. I know your deeds. And back, to cha- back in chapter one, it says that he walks among them. He knows everything about these churches, everything about their cities. And if you lived in Pergamum, a white stone with your name on it meant that you were significant. Almost all the buildings in the city were built from dark, almost black stone. And so in that city, you had to import white stones. So they were expensive. It was rare. So only the really significant people in the city would buy white stones and they'd have their family name or their business engraved on them and placed above the door of their house or their business. And so to those from Pergamum, to have a white stone with your name written on it was a status symbol. That actually meant you were someone who's significant. Jesus says to them, I will give you a white stone with a new name on it. I will be the one who makes you significant. To Thyatira, he promises them authority over the nations, that they will rule with Christ. And to Sardis, Jesus promises that they will be dressed in white and that he himself will acknowledge them before God the Father. And so what's he promising these three churches? And do you know what that image of being dressed in white, it signifies moral purity. To those who are victorious, to those who trust in him, he gives moral purity. And not only that, he's promising to make them significant. All, all of these idols that they would turn to, to get significance, to be pure, they would let them down. But Jesus is described as the first and the last. His eyes are like burning fire, his feet like burnished bronze. Their idols and your idols will always let you down but not Jesus Christ because he is the true God, the true king who's calling you to reign and to rule with him and he will give you a white stone with a new name written on it. And so idols always let you down, uh, but so does self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency actually wears you down and that's uh, the next set of churches and that's the problem in Ephesus and Laodicea. In fact, the church in Ephesus appears to be, they they look like they're really spiritually strong. Jesus lists all their apparent strengths. He says, you work hard, you persevere, you don't tolerate wickedness, you test the truth of people's teaching, you've endured and you haven't grown weary, You you just keep going. You're strong. And yet, look at verse four. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. 
And do you know what that's saying? It's saying they've been doing all these things without actually loving Jesus Christ. They've been working hard. They've been persevering. They've been holding to true teaching. They've endured, not out of love for Christ, but out of a desire to be strong in and of themselves, to be self-sufficient. And Jesus says to them, in doing this, you've forsaken the love you had at first, the love that you have for me. And in Laodicea, they're self-sufficient too, but in a different way. If the Ephesian church is self-sufficient spiritually, if they're the older brother in the prodigal son story, then the Laodiceans don't need spiritual things at all. They're like the younger brother. Look over at chapter 3, verse 15. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. And this church is so turned off to spiritual things, they neither hate Jesus nor love him. He's just there. And maybe that's you. Maybe days go by, weeks, months, and you don't give Jesus a second thought. Maybe you give him a first thought, but not a second. You're neither hot nor cold. In verse 16, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. And so the Laodicean church seems to have everything they need. They're rich, they don't need anything. But look what Jesus says to the self-sufficient, verse 17, but, chapter three, seventeen. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And here's what this is getting at. In our culture, we, we've elevated self-sufficiency to just about the highest ideal. If you can do it on your own, if you can be a true individual, then you're at the pinnacle of our collective culture because you did it on your own. But what this text is saying is actually to be self-sufficient is not to be strong, but to be self-sufficient is to be weak and not even realize your weakness. But listen to what Jesus says to the Laodicean church. Chapter three, verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. He's saying, let your, let your self-sufficiency guard down. You don't have to be self-sufficient. You don't have to have the door all locked up and you're all good on the inside. Open the door, let Jesus in and have true fellowship with him. In other words, your strength is to invite Jesus in and sit at the table with him for him to be with you for you to be with him and only when you do that will you be able to overcome that's what he says and so idols let you down self-sufficiency wears you down but lastly it says in here that the world is bearing down uh, that's the last set of, of churches there's two churches Smyrna and Philadelphia and they're healthy so two out of seven churches are healthy and what that means is the world is bearing down on the churches who are healthy. So even a good church has difficulty. To the church in Smyrna, Jesus says to them, I know your afflictions and your poverty. And to the church in Philadelphia, he says, I know that you have little strength. 
And so these fellowships, they're small. They're weak. They're facing persecution. The world around them is closing in on them. They're marginalized in the city. They're marginalized at work. They're betrayed by their families. And they are going to suffer, some of them, even all the way to the point of death. And to be honest, in this city, we can identify with them. I mean, there aren't any that I'm aware of in our, in our church um, that have fled their home countries because they were under threat of death for being a Christian. But I know there are in our city. But not only that, just think about our church. We're, we're so small in number. Uh, there's probably about 30 or 40 people now who would call this their church. And we live in a county of 11 million people. If L.A. County was a state, it would be the ninth largest state in the U.S. The county area is bigger than Rhode Island. We'll just do a little math because, you know, from time to time I like to try out a calculator. Uh, here's what this means. Our church is 0.000036% of L.A. County. That's five zero, so point zero 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 of L.A. County. Now, thankfully, we're not the only Christ-centered church in the city, but according to a, now an outdated USC poll of L.A. County, we would, we'd be doing well if 10% of our city had the same beliefs that we do, that our church does. Um, and that's an outdated poll, and so that means that number is probably even smaller now. So we are weak in number and have little strength. Listen, the world was bearing down on these seven real churches in Asia. And it's bearing down on us to, today. And the temptation will always be to compromise or to keep silent. So I'll compromise or I'll keep my mouth shut. But the challenge given to this small, weak, insignificant church in Smyrna, listen to this, chapter 2, verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. That's to the, that's to the, the healthy church. You're going to suffer. And in Philadelphia, the challenge is this, chapter 3, verse 11. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. I know that we're weak. Jesus knows that we're weak. But the call, the challenge is still to overcome. And we must overcome because those who overcome are promised this, chapter 2, verse 11, to Smyrna. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. That's to the church. He said, some of you are going to be put to death. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. And Jesus promised promises the one who chapter 3 verse 12 the one who is victorious I will make a pillar in the temple of my God never again will they leave it I will write my name write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God the new Jerusalem and I'll also write on them my new name so how do we overcome how do we find the strength to live in this tension 
we need an encounter with the glorious risen Jesus Christ, the one who John, when John meets him in chapter one, he falls on the crown. We need an encounter with the glorified Jesus Christ, whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet like bronze glowing in a furnace, and whose tongue is a double-edged sword. That is what we need. But how could we ever stand before him if John, the great apostle, who followed Jesus as his closest, most loved disciple, who traveled the world to tell people the gospel, who wrote five books, and if he can't stand before him, how could we ever possibly do so ourselves? We see that's the whole point. We need to stand before the glorious Jesus Christ, the one with eyes on fire and hair like snow, because if we don't, then we will turn to other idols. Or we'll think... We'll think our own goodness is sufficient to save us. We'll be self-sufficient. No, no, we need an encounter with the glorious, brilliant Jesus Christ, whose face is like the sun shining in all its brilliance. His is a presence that we cannot endure. We have to turn away from him. We have to look away. But at the same time, we need to encounter that Jesus Christ, the true Jesus Christ, so that we will be humbled. We need to encounter him so that our only option is to turn and trust in the humble and stricken Jesus Christ, who is the lamb. Who put his hand on our shoulder and says, like he said to John, do not be afraid. And we don't need to be afraid because of what Jesus says next. Why is it that not only can Jesus say to John, don't be afraid, but he can actually touch him on the shoulder and John is not Consumed, He's not destroyed. Think about it. If Jesus' presence is unbearable, surely his touch would be deadly. And so why is John not consumed? Well, it's because of what he says in chapter 1, verse 18. Jesus says, I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus can touch John. He can say to John, do not be afraid, because Jesus is the living one. He was dead, but now he is alive again forever and ever. And so John can stand up. John can endure the presence of Jesus Christ, the presence of God in all of his glory, because Jesus Christ died and now is alive again. John can stand before Jesus Christ, and we can stand before Jesus Christ, because Jesus, the glorious one, the holy one, the one who has a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, the one who is the first and the last, the one whose eyes burn like fire, whose face radiates like the brilliance of the sun, we can stand before him because he is the one who completely and utterly humbled himself by dying on a cross. He went to the cross for you. He went to the cross for me so that all of our sin, all of the things that we're ashamed of, when we would stand before him, it would be put on him. The way it's described elsewhere in the New Testament is that he, Jesus Christ, who, who never sinned, who knew no sin, says he became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that we could stand before him so that we can endure. And to those who are trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, to those who opened the door, Jesus says that, what did he say? He said, I'll open the door and I'll come in and I'll eat with you. How different is that? 
not falling on your face, but having a meal, an intimate meal with him. And the only way that's possible is if you let Jesus Christ bear the punishment that you deserve. If you let Jesus Christ take the wrath of God so that you can receive the love of God through his grace and mercy. And so to those who trust in Jesus, when we encounter him in all his brilliance, he will put his hand on our shoulder and he will say to us, do not be afraid. I'm alive again. I was dead, but now I'm alive. I said, do you want to overcome? Do you want to be able to stand face to face with him and be able to endure? Then you need what John experiences back in chapter one, to have an encounter with Jesus Christ, to admit your utter helplessness before him. And then he will say to you, when you do that, do not be afraid. And if you do that, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, it means that you can say and you can actually sing the hallelujah. You can say it. You can say it no matter the circumstances. You'll be able to say it no matter what you're facing because you know that at the end, you're going to join in that rousing chorus. And just listen to what those who overcome will be able to sing at the very end of time. And these are the words that not only those who are trusting in Christ can sing after he comes a second time to bring true and final redemption on earth, but we can sing them now. Revelation chapter 19. This is, this is only the fourth, but it's the last time the word is used in the Bible. Revelation 19, verse 6. John describes this. Then I heard what seemed to be the glorious voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And it's as we look forward to saying hallelujah on that day, we can say it today, no matter our circumstances. Because we know that we'll say it on the last day, we can say it today. And so Revelation is a book that's meant to show us as Christians, show Christians uh, are those peculiar people who can say hallelujah even when they're facing severe trials. Those peculiar people who can say hallelujah when they're facing loss, heartache, challenges. A Christian is a person who can say hallelujah today because he or she knows that they're going to say it on the last day. That's what we're going to see as we go through Revelation. And I hope by the end of it we'll be able to say it no matter what we face. Uh, let's pray. Our Father, we, we join with those in Revelation 19 who say hallelujah. Whatever the circumstances we're facing, Lord, we look forward to that day. And in light of whatever we're facing, whatever we're going through, we say hallelujah. Knowing that you will come one day to put everything right. In Jesus' name, amen.